My name is Jorge Vignuales. I'm a professor uh, at the University of Cambridge, where I'm specialized in international law, international environmental law, uh, international dispute settlement, and other areas of international law. The purpose of this presentation is to introduce the issue of uh, state responsibility, and more specifically, uh, the issue of state responsibility in general international law. Uh, from that perspective, the, the topic can be circumscribed by reference to three uh, pivotal notions. So first, this is a system uh, that concerns states. It is a system that concerns states in international law, not in domestic law. And it will look at the rules that emerge from general international law and not from some specific treaty systems such as the World Trade Organization agreements or some other agreements that create a specific uh, regime for state responsibility. Now, look from that perspective, the topic of uh, the uh, responsibility of states for internationally wrongful acts took over 40 years to be codified and developed uh, in the context of the UN International Law Commission. Uh, between the late 1940s and 2001, where a second draft of articles was adopted uh, and, and, and sent to the General Assembly, uh, the topic was uh, really widely discussed, not just within the International Law Commission, but also in policy circles and in academic circles. So what we uh, got in, in, in 2001 was a fairly mature set of articles, although the time uh, over 40 years may appear to be uh, extremely long. The uh, draft articles are probably the most uh, important instrument for the general law of uh, international state responsibility. And these lectures, this set of lectures, will look at those draft articles uh, in three main steps. So the first lecture will look at how the issue of state responsibility has been framed uh, historically, conceptually, and how it is different from other regimes. Uh, the second lecture will look at one of the three components of the rules of state responsibility, namely the conditions for the triggering of the rules of state responsibility. And the third lecture will look at the two other main components of the law of state responsibility, namely the consequences that are triggered and the processes through which that system is uh, implemented. The first lecture uh, concerns the framing of the overall topic. And, and, and from the perspective of, uh, of international law, it is important to introduce a distinction between uh, two types of, of norms. So as a general matter, uh, the conduct that is to be observed by states is defined by rules of conduct that are usually called primary norms of international law. A typical example would be the prohibition of the use of force. Uh, those primary norms, when they are not observed, uh, so when there is a breach of a primary norm of international law, trigger consequences that are defined in other sets of rules that are usually called secondary norms, not because they are less important, but, they come, but because they come into play later on the basis of a breach of a primary norm. The law of state responsibility consists essentially, not only, but essentially, of 
secondary norms of international law. And as I was saying earlier, it actually uh, has three main components of secondary norms. Uh, the norms that concern the conditions, the norms that concern the consequences, and the norms that concern the processes of implementation. Now, that distinction was not an obvious one since the beginning. In fact, when in the late 1940s, the topic of uh, the responsibility of states for internationally wrongful act started to be codified, the first special rapporteur, uh, the Cuban Garcia Amador, uh, looked at the, at, the, at the topic from a different perspective, a perspective that reflected much more the history over roughly 150 years uh, of uh, the protection of aliens abroad, uh, what we would call today either uh, diplomatic protection or investment law. And in the framing, in the framing of the topic at the beginning, uh, there was this idea that both some primary norms and some secondary norms would be put together and would be looked at in some detail. Uh, it was also the times where uh, the, the, the movement of human rights was becoming increasingly important. So Garcia Amador tried to look at this, at this uh, combination of things. And uh, of course, the, the framing of Garcia Amador became extremely controversial because of the history and the implications of those rules for many of the states, uh, including Latin American states, uh, and also the, with the emerging uh, East-West divide, uh, the topic became extremely controversial. So the, the, the point uh, of the distinction that was introduced by the second special rapporteur, Roberto Ago, a very prominent Italian professor who uh, went to become uh, uh, a judge at the International Court of Justice, uh, was precisely to, uh, in a way, diffuse this initial uh, uh, problem and focus only on secondary norms rather than on primary norms. So uh, when Ago introduced this, this, this idea, he was trying to uh, overcome a number of problems. The first, as I was mentioning, the very uh, narrow focus of Garcia Amador. The second, the uh, political controversy that was triggered by that very narrow focus. Uh, the third, I would guess, is, is much more general. Ago wanted secondary rules of international law that would be relevant and applicable and derive consequences for a breach of any type of primary norm. Not just primary norms about the protection of aliens or property, but any type of primary norm. Uh, not just rules that would be assimilated to the logic of private law, but also rules that would be assimilated in domestic law to the logic of public law, and even the logic of criminal law. Uh, we must remember that at the time Ago uh, was working on this issue, there was one of the most important codification processes uh, uh, that was undertaken, not at the ILC, but by a special committee, and that led in 1970 to the adoption of the uh, Friendly Relation Declaration, uh, Resolution 2625 of the General Assembly. So those types of norms that uh, codified, that, that, that fleshed out the principles of the Charter had to be also taken into account, and, and the system of AGO was precisely to be a system applicable to any uh, breach of a primary norm, or more specifically, to any breach of any primary norm. 
Now, the fourth consideration that for Agua was very important was uh, a matter of practicality. It was simply not possible to codify primary norms in international law. It would be, it would be far too difficult because of the very structure of international law, which is very much based on treaties. So all those four considerations led, not without controversy, to the topic uh, being uh, circumscribed in a, according to Agos' approach. And over time, it remained, and until the present day, uh, this is how the framing of the topic is. Uh, after Roberto Ago became uh, appointed to the International Court of Justice, uh, uh, a Dutch professor, uh, Rip Hagen, took over as special rapporteur, and he was able to, to complete work on the first part of the draft articles, conditions, and start work on the second part, which at the time uh, uh, combined or, or, or included both uh, consequences and, and processes to some extent. Uh, thereafter, the uh, uh, subsequent special rapporteur, the Italian professor uh, Gaetano Arangio Ruiz, uh, uh, completed a draft, the first draft, uh, in 1996. And that first draft actually uh, went uh, for comment by members of the uh, General Assembly states, but also the wider community of academics and policymakers. And Although the first draft was a very sophisticated draft, it came under great criticism because of the way in which some uh, norms, uh, some secondary norms, have tried to reflect uh, the differences in primary norms, and more specifically because of the concept of an international crime of states, uh, the then Article 19 of the uh, 1996 project. I will say a word later about this issue, but let me just complete uh, the story of the, uh, of the codification process. Uh, with this backlash between 1996 and 2001, a new special rapporteur took over the, 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 the task of, of, in a way, scale down, make more politically realistic, and at the same time uh, streamline, uh, make uh, more uh, less uh, less redundant in, in some parts because of the work had actually seen many different special rapporteurs. And this is what we uh, had, uh, uh, the work of uh, the ILC Commission with the special rapporteur James Crawford from Cambridge, from Australia, uh, uh, a former professor in Cambridge. Uh, the, that, that work actually was, was the, the second uh, draft articles. And this is the draft articles that we have today. Uh, adopted in, in 2001 that I will be discussing in, in the rest of the lectures. Now, that is the, uh, the very brief historical survey that I wanted to, to share because I think it is very important to understand a, a number of uh, issues, uh, a number of uh, difficulties, and a number of uh, uh, considerations and practicalities in the implementation of the uh, ILC articles today. Uh, one very important issue that I would like to uh, discuss a bit further, because I think it clarifies the, the structure not just of the ILC articles, but also of the broader topic of state responsibility, and I would say even is one of the fault lines, one of the main fault lines uh, in the international legal system, is the issue of crimes of states. So it, it is a window. The issue of crimes of states 
is a window into the structure of international law, and I would like to say a word uh, about it because I think it is it is very important. Now, why is why is this issue so so important and so so essential for the uh, the question of uh, state responsibility? Well, because particularly after the second half of the 20th century, uh, primary norms of international law underwent uh, a significant transformation. Before, uh, in classical international law, primary norms were pretty much horizontal. They were conceived in many ways as private law, uh, regulating relations between uh, equals, horizontal relations between equals. And there was no uh, stratification in those primary norms in the same way as one would find a stratification in terms of importance, in terms of operation, in terms of hierarchy, and so on, in domestic law. So there was no public and criminal law in international law. There was just private law in many ways. Of course, this is an analogy that has its limitations. But there was no stratification of primary norms. Uh, with the war and the world order that was built uh, in 1945 and subsequently, that stratification became more and more important and more and more accepted. And the question became, well, to what extent that stratification in primary norms has to be reflected in a modulation, in a stratification uh, of secondary norms of state responsibility as well. Now, the question did not arise in the framing of Garcia Amador, which maintained the private law uh, approach, but it certainly arose uh, after the framing of AGO and subsequent special rapporteurs uh, was, was adopted. And the answer that was given to that framing, uh, the modulation in secondary norms that tried to reflect the stratification in primary norms that was given in the in the first uh, draft of 1996 was perhaps politically too extreme, but it was not removed entirely in the uh, 2001 draft. Uh, and that is very important to keep in mind because, as we will see in the second and the third lecture, uh, there are some implications, particularly in connection with consequences and processes of uh, invocation. Now, the current, uh, the current framing of the topic, essentially, there are no crimes of states in international law, uh, but there are, of course, crimes of individuals, international crimes of individuals. So there is no international criminal responsibility of states, but there is international criminal responsibility of individuals. That framing uh, has been uh, confirmed by the International Court of Justice uh, notably in the uh, Bosnia genocide case of 2007. Um, the framing that there are consequences and processes that reflect the stratification in primary norms uh, at the level of state responsibility has also been confirmed, although less uh, explicitly, by the International Court of Justice in, in a range of cases, such as the World Advisory Opinion of 2004, more recently, the Chagos Advisory Opinion of 2019, and some previous contentious cases, uh, uh, specifically the Belgium-Senegal 
case of 2011 on the obligation to extradite and the whaling case uh, between uh, Australia and Japan. So this framing has been uh, influential and today, and I will come back to this issue, it would be probably uh, fair to say that it's no longer progressive development but it, it reflects custom and international law uh, and with important implications. I mean, one, one can think of, uh, of the relevance of this issue of, of a modulation in secondary norms. For instance, for the recent uh, uh, introduction of a claim by uh, the Gambia against Myanmar in connection with the uh, uh, atrocities committed against the Rohingyas. Now, this is how I wanted to frame uh, the, the topic in this first lecture. So all in all, I think that what has to remain in mind uh, in preparation for the second lecture is that the system is built on a conceptual distinction between primary norms of conduct and secondary norms uh, that govern the consequences of breaching a primary norm of conduct. So as we will see in the next two lectures, uh, the consequences, uh, so not, in fact the conditions for a breach to exist uh, are governed not only by the primary norm itself, but also to some extent by secondary norms. Then the consequences of that breach are governed by primary norms. And then, of course, the processes uh, uh, through which that breach and those consequences are ascertained uh, are also governed by uh, uh, secondary norms. So thank you for your attention, and uh, we will come back to this topic in the second lecture.